Our gospel this week uh, is from the 8th chapter of the book of Mark. If you'd like to follow along, you can scan one of those QR codes or just sit back and listen. Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation of them, the Son of Man, will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The gospel of our Lord. This is the real reason we have a crowd today. It's because this is the get behind me Satan Sunday. Okay, uh, get behind me Satan, I think probably we can all agree is the worst um, job performance evaluation that anyone has ever received. You can picture um, getting together for that end of year review. What do you have to say about how I have been performing in this new task, this new role that I have been given? Get behind me, Satan. Um, not the words that you want to hear. And in fact, I think we get so hung up on that because it just sort of cuts to the quick. It seems very strong. Um, but also, I think part of why it jumps out is that we are not used to strong rebuke. Are we? I mean, I, thank you, um, I feel like there are so many moments where I want to be strong and authoritative and say, no, we're not going to do this. And instead, I ask things in the form of a question, like, would you like to get ready for bed? Um, not a good approach, and you'd think you'd learn, but instead, always, it's just that nice, gentle, we like to just strongly, you should not, you shouldn't play, with, it's not a good idea to play with the sharp knives. Let's, could we think of something else to do? Um, we're not used to saying no. This is not the way things are supposed to go. This is not how things are supposed to be. After all, I think maybe some of us grew up hearing that, and then we want to be different in our own lives and our own relationships with other people and as parents, and, and however it might be this whole idea of saying that, that right there, nope, that is wrong. Uh, we like to sort of hedge our bets. I love when, um, and I know I have done this, I've heard many of you share the same thing, we are really strong and confident about something, and then the way we share that is to say, yes, it is a beautiful day, I think. We don't think it's a beautiful day. We don't have to qualify it or water it down. I mean, we just know some things to be right and wrong, to be the way things are and the way things aren't. And in this moment, we have Peter who is hearing Jesus saying how this all works, <laughs> what is going on in this world and with his life and what God is doing in the middle of all of that. And Peter says, oh, but wouldn't it be nice if we could just ignore all of that and just enjoy the moment. 
just live into this particular time that we have together. Just wouldn't it be great if instead of the whole death and resurrection and cross thing, you just like squashed all the people we don't like and raised everybody we do like up to power and we all had everything we could ever want and need and wouldn't that feel good? And that is what causes Jesus to say, get behind me, Satan. And I don't know if that was with a chuckle or if that was like strong and authoritative. We don't really have any context clues for what those kind of conversations sounded like, but we do know that a beat was not missed, that something was off from this idea that Peter had about the way life is supposed to be lived and the way that Jesus had about the way life is supposed to be lived. When I was in my early 20s, I was living in Washington, D.C. I had an internship with an organization called Bread for the World, if anybody's heard of them. Um, I was a lobbyist, like the good kind. There's good ones and the other ones. Um, Our organization exclusively lobbied um, on behalf of hungry people, both in the United States and abroad. Um, Whenever a farm bill comes up, I don't know if anyone's familiar with that, um, we call it the farm bill. It's really sort of a misnomer. It is actually billions of dollars to help help people who don't have enough food have food. Um, It's a way that we're able to share all of our abundance in this country that we have that no one can argue um, with places where kids are literally dying of malnutrition and hunger. Um, There are all these moments where a stroke of a pen can totally change the shape uh, of people's lives. I was there in the early 2000s. I was in college still, and my head was like full of big ideas. Like, why can't we just fix it all? Can't, like, how hard can this be, people? Like, let's put it together. And we had a foundation um, that worked just doing research on behalf of um, people doing hunger-related advocacy. So the whole idea was maybe if we just knew more about what causes hunger, we could just decide as human beings with a few strokes of some pens that we don't want hunger to be a thing anymore. Um, And we determined in 2002, with the help of Bono and a few other celebrities that were weighing in and trying to get a lot of momentum around this, that for $2 billion, this is a while ago, $2 billion, hunger could be eliminated in the entire globe. Like to put that in perspective, that's nothing. What is our budget in this country, let alone multiply that times many, 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 many countries? And $2 billion is like a rounding error in our federal budget. For $2 billion, at least back in 2002, we could have solved hunger. So here I am, um, and I am living the dream. I'm in D.C., and I am realizing that it is easy. All these problems are solvable. All we have to do is like get everybody on board. Obviously, none of us want anybody to be hungry. How hard can this possibly be? Um, I also was an intern living with a bunch of interns. So if you've ever been in, in this environment, you can just picture all of the weird social connections you suddenly have access to from nothing. So I was a kid in Ohio at a college in a dorm room one minute. The next minute, I am in a penthouse apartment overlooking the um, Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial. Uh, my roommates and other people that were in this program that lived around me, one was an intern in um, George W. Bush's White House, so we had White House access. There were interns for senators and at the Smithsonian and at the Spy Museum. Weekends were awesome. So many connections. Invites to the Easter egg roll or to go and collect those little tiny plates at fundraisers with big expensive people who go to give money to other big expensive people because they don't all have enough. I don't know. Um, We were living the dream. This is the life. This is what we all aspire to, right? I mean, the thing um, in the early 2000s with D.C., this was like right after 9-11, so there was a little bit of tightening, but still 
blew my mind how accessible our government is. You can walk into a Senate office building and sit in a senator's lobby and wait to see if they're available. I mean, you can walk right up to the Capitol. You can take a tour. You can wander around the, the mall and see all of these monuments to all of our accomplishments in history. And you can run into all sorts of famous people all the time. I mean, I was wandering around Capitol Hill. I do these things called hill drops. So I would have, um, I, oh, I'm going to embarrass myself. I can't remember how many House and Senate offices there are. There's a lot. It's like almost 500. I would have a little piece of paper that would say, if only you would just, just, this is all you have to do is say yes, and we could end hunger in the entire globe. If only you would do that. And I would take that piece of paper around every single House office and every single Senate office, and I would run into all sorts of people. I would run into celebrities and politicians, and just right here, like, we're, this is what you do. It's very accessible and open. And I thought to myself, oh, I am living the dream. I mean, how incredible is it to be close to so much power, to be able to solve so many problems, to be right in the middle of all this beauty and, and grandeur? Isn't this incredible? I would get off every day at this little metro stop on the side of Union Station and walk to my office awaiting the next adventure, living the dream. And one day, as happens way too often, the metro broke down and I couldn't leave the exit that I usually left at a Union Station, and I left out the front. You've probably seen pictures, or many of you have been there, I'm sure. You can picture Union Station, big, grand train station. You can see it from the Capitol. It is beautiful. There's a fountain in front that is monumental. Not quite the size of this room, but it's close. And every day I just sort of walked and never looked that way. But this day I walked out the front doors and the fountain from the capitals, you look to Union Station as this glorious monument to democracy and art and beauty. It's, it's gorgeous. And on the backside, homeless people sleep. So many. There's a nice tall wall. So if you're looking from Capitol Hill down towards Union Station, you can't see any of them. And I had never left this door, and it was the first time that I had come out of this particular spot. And I walk out, living the dream, ready to solve the world's problems and schmooze with fancy people. And right there, this reminder of how little we have done, how much we have to do. And I, for the rest of my time there, left through that door, um, I don't know why. I don't think I made a conscious choice. I just found myself, you know, you get into a habit after like a few days and you start doing that again and again. I found it really good as I was walking into the seat of all of this power and authority and ability and, and, and fanciness to remind myself that we have so much farther to do. That what I thought was living the dream was actually just a, a nice false little image of a tiny little sliver of my own little life. It had nothing to do with where we were as people. I mean, Jesus just digs into Peter when he says, oh, but this is great for us. Isn't this great? Like, you are with us. God is doing all of these amazing things through you and us. We're learning. We get to travel. I mean, isn't it beautiful? We get to see people healed, and we get to hear all of this scripture and all of these things that we have heard our whole lives finally make sense. Isn't this great? We are living the dream. And Jesus says, get behind me. Unless you lose your life, you will never gain it. And we hear that to be some sort of... I don't know, call to sacrifice. It's just difficult for us to really figure out how to put that into action, isn't it? 
until we have the perspective that I think Jesus is trying to convey in this moment. It is not about you living the dream. It is about all of us finding true life. And we cannot tap in to true life if there are people just on the backside of the fountain sleeping there overnight. We cannot tap in to true life if there is suffering left anywhere in this world, not just in our own little country, not in our own relationships or our community. I agree, that's an easy place to start. But man, oh man, when we see images and reminders of suffering and brokenness in this world, we cannot sit back and say, but we're living the dream because it should break our hearts. We should give up on that life and instead embrace this new life that Jesus points us towards, a life where we are not afraid of or shirk around the other side of the challenges and the suffering and the brokenness in this world, but instead realize that we are able to dig right down into the middle of it, to care, to make a difference, to bring change, to realize that that's what God is up to. And so when we enter into that place, we join with God in this beautiful and holy work. I was not much of a churchgoer. Um, there were a lot of parties on Saturday nights with all the fancy people and the free food, and I was working a lot. It was like Sunday morning just comes early. Um, we never ran out of parking when this was 9.30, I'm just saying. Um, so after this little experience and being confronted with the fact that one minute I was in a boardroom sitting next to Bono, and the next minute I am recognizing that there are people who are hungry and homeless right outside of our office. Um, right after that, I said, you know, I need, like, something. I don't know how to process this. So I found um, this little church. It was not a big place, fewer people in worship than this. Probably, like, 50 or 60 people would gather regularly on a Sunday um, in this big sort of cavernous space that had been in D.C. for a couple hundred years. It was an interesting community. I didn't really know what I was walking into. These few people, like 50, 60 people, um, they had built a high-rise, low-income housing project with 100 apartments next to their church. They fed a thousand people a week out of a, a soup kitchen, food pantry, a job creation kind of cafe kind of area. I mean, they had more happening in their little tiny corner of DC to say, oh, it's not about us living the dream. It is about us living the dream to, to expand and, and give up on all the things that they could have only solely for themselves and instead to share all of that with others. I mean, imagine to have all of the resources you would ever need to just live a life of luxury, the life of your dreams for the rest of your life, and to be able to say, that's not actually living. What if we included people who wouldn't normally be included in that? What if we made opportunities for other people? What if we gave up the life we could have for this new life? And now we get why Jesus is so forceful and calls his best friend Satan. I mean, that surely is a temptation we all fall into to say, oh, but I want to live the dream. We're living the dream. Isn't that enough? And he says, no, 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 no. Not until we all, and I mean all, are able to live this new kind of life. Will we find satisfaction? Will we find love? Will we really tap into the purpose and meaning of all that we do? Oh, such a good reminder that we will never have enough anyway. So why don't we give up on that dream and instead embrace this new one?
of a new life where God is in charge, where God points us to what it would look like for only a few billion dollars for no one to go hungry this year and not give up on that or just be glad that we have food on our tables, but to care about it again and again and again, to find that that brings all sorts of new life. I'm not going to lie. I lived a very sheltered and lovely childhood in a cornfield. I went to a small little liberal arts school that was lovely and safe and very expensive. And then I found myself in this church in D.C. surrounded by a bunch of people who were telling me about their time living on the streets or how they had clawed their way out of addiction, not through their own importance and goodwill and strut. No, because a bunch of people around them said, we are not going to let you figure that out on your own. I met people who said, I don't care what I am when I grow up. That's really hard to hear in your 20s. Because it's not about me, it's about us. And I don't know what you all are going to need when I'm a little older and have a little more resources and a few more gifts to share. So I'm just still waiting and seeing what God needs me to be doing in this world and to not fill up my plate with so much stuff that I can't say sure and embrace it. I mean, I gave up pretty quick on the notion that all of those fancy people in their nice suits and big offices have any power. Um, we, collectively, Jesus reminds us, have all of the power in the world to care, to, to bring about this new life, to include others in that. Uh, I realized pretty quickly um, that it wasn't about all of the stuff that we can have or saying the right things or voting in a certain way or being able to have access to certain opportunities. If there are other people that we can know and care about who are not included, how does that feel? I mean, Jesus seems so pointed and direct and a little harsh in this moment, and I think it is exactly the opposite. I think this is our wake-up call, that time where we realize that we are never living the dream if it is only about ourselves or our family, or our tiny little community, or the people that we happen to know. I mean, that true life, real life, is realizing that we are connected so deeply to so many others, to care, to partner with, to work together, to realize that until we all are able to give up our sense that life is just about us, we will never truly be able to live. So may we be the kinds of people that look to and ask others, what do you need to find real life, to live your dreams? May we see suffering and not walk by on the other side or ignore it, but realize that we will never find true life and happiness and meaning in this world until we have cared and engaged it and helped people move to a new place. May we be the kind of community that reminds ourselves again and again and again that it is not about living our individual dreams. It is about finding new life together in this beautiful world that God is revealing each and every day. Amen?